So this evening I'd like to begin with an excerpt from a poem called Self-Portrait by David White. It doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. I want to know if you know despair and can see it in others. I want to know if you're prepared to live in this world with its harsh need to change you. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living, falling toward the center of your longing. I want to know if you're willing to live day by day with the consequences of love. Whenever I come across that poem, it's, it's in my compassion folder, I know, I know what this means, and I think you know what that means, too. So tonight I'd like to speak about the ecology of compassion. The ecology of compassion. And by ecology, in this title, I mean the interrelationship of our inner world with our outer world, and how compassion finds itself in that relationship. We're born into this life on earth of great vulnerability. And I think on retreat like this, at times like this, when there is a a lot of silence and a relative stillness to our bodies and to our minds, we really see the vulnerability of life within ourselves and all around us. It's vulnerable because conditions are constantly changing. We can see that so clearly. Our bodies, the situations around us, economically and politically, the environment, The elements of earth, air, water, and fire are constantly changing and affecting one another. And we too, as people on this earth, are affecting the environment. And beyond that, beyond this Mother Earth, too, there are many forces that affect this planet. And in turn, our planet affects forces beyond this planet. And the mind and the heart, these conditions, always changing. The mind and the heart not always seeing experience with clarity, with wisdom. Not always responding with kindness or compassion. Just reacting in habitual ways, ways that maybe served us in the past but no longer serve us now. But still, the habits come, unbidden, and they're so, so forceful. Ways that bring disharmony, these habit patterns. Oftentimes, doing more harm than good, bringing more suffering. So this is the reality of life that we face when we sit in in these quiet moments, here on retreat and when even when we're at home and we really open to the vulnerability of life. This is why we need the courage and love that is compassion. Because without this courage and love together, which is compassion, we wouldn't be able to really live. We wouldn't be able to face that fire of life um, with, with love. So compassion is facing reality with a wise and a kind heart and mind. It's the ability to face reality with wisdom, with love. In an old journal, I found a passage where I had written about an ever-present quiet desperation that I had about life. And I had begun my spiritual practice a few years before that and it came on quite strongly I asked 
my teacher at that time, Manindraji, what, what is this? What's going on? I feel like, you know, I feel this quiet desperation about life and I want to get to the end of it. I want to know what is the cause of this? Where can there be uh, an end to this? And what is the path to the end of this? I didn't say it in those words, but I wanted to really, really know. And I wanted to know soon, because it was <laughs> not, not exactly now, but I wanted to know soon. I didn't want to wait a lifetime until you know, the maturing of old age uh, that, that brings that kind of natural maturing into understanding life. But I wanted to be able to understand sooner than later so that I had children, so that I could be a good mother and impart it around me more easily. So he said, this is spiritual urgency that you are experiencing. There's a word for it in Pali called samvega, spiritual urgency. It was at that time, and we've been talking about it in the back room with the other teachers, that fire we felt when we were younger in our 20s and how we're, I think we're beginning to feel it again, that uh, as James put it, and just took the words right out of my mouth, it was like my hair was on fire with the Dharma, with really wanting to know the truth and finding a path that I could follow to open to that. So I asked Manindra at that time, okay, well, what's the meaning of my life? Why am I alive? Why am I here? You know, I'm feeling confused right now, and I... I I need some guidance. And he said, very simply, he said, your life is to develop compassion and wisdom. Just boom, just like that. It wasn't any more explanation. It was just as clear as that. I remember the time we were together and I remember the encounter we had and how direct and clear his voice was and just his energy was around that question. So compassion is facing reality, facing our confusion, facing the doubt in our minds, facing the aversion, the ill will, the grasping, the clinging, all of those things which close us down and make us unclear. Facing it with a kind heart, which enables the mind to have more clarity. Because we're not closing down. We're not turning away. We're not striking out at. We're not running away from the moment. We're really facing life as it is. Being able to connect with what is difficult within us or outside of us, this takes a lot of compassion. It takes gentleness and courage together. It takes a really strong heart. And here when we're doing this practice of metta or any of the practices that we do in the Brahma Viharas, we're really strengthening our hearts and our minds. That's why we're in this training together. That's why we're all here uh, serving you because we're continuing to train And that's why you're here. Many of you are very senior in your practice and you know perfectly well what these words are about. So from what I hear and see in the various communities that I'm connected with in my hometown and in different parts of the world that I serve, there's a growing sense of urgency, not just for liberation and understanding for oneself, but the urgency to help, to do what we can in this changing world with the environment that we're having and the political strife that goes on all around us. It's been happening from time immemorial, but it's so clear to us in this day and age because of the electronic age we live in, the information age we live in. We want to do what we can to offer our gifts, no matter how insignificant we may feel them to be, even if it's just to our grandchildren, which is no small thing, to our children, 
to the young ones around us, to our elders, to our peers. We really want to help. I think I can speak for every one of you, knowing how just how the Dharma has touched many people's hearts. We want to touch the world, which is increasing in complexity and speed, even if we touched the world just with more simplicity or just with slowing down, it would be a great thing. It would be a huge thing to do that. To touch the world, of course, with kindness. So equally as strong, there's also an urgency to go within. That's why we're here. To go deep within, to that place of simply recognizing, simply acknowledging what needs to be done based on knowing our inner landscape. So we have to have, as Sally keeps mentioning, we have to have this willingness, have to have had this willingness and some kind of faith to get here, because we are here, to know what needs to be done by really taking a look at this inner landscape and facing it with that kind of courage of compassion. When we do the practices of the Brahma Viharas, which we're handing over to you during this retreat, we're forming wholesome habit patterns. We're inclining the mind and heart over and over again towards goodwill, towards compassion, towards sympathetic joy, and also to equanimity. These are the practices that we're handing down to you. And these are very powerful practices in the world, powerful enough to face all that is unwholesome in the world, powerful enough to swallow it up and for it to come out the victor. In the course of doing that, it's also a purification process, as many of you have come to know, especially on this day. There's a day in retreat which we call Maximum Dukkha Day. (laughs) It might be a different day for each retreat, but it's kind of like this was the day for for the yogis I saw, Maximum Dukkha Day. (laughs) In this purification process, we're able to experience a clear view of how it is in our hearts to know what the inner landscape is, to know what has to be done because we see what's going on inside. That is required. You can't bypass that. You can't just really go straight to feeling all giddy with goodwill without really seeing the the near and far enemies of goodwill, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, equanimity. We come to know the entire landscape in our practice how it actually is in our hearts. So it takes a real sobering honesty to do these practices. We need mindfulness to practice goodwill, to practice metta. We also need metta to practice the mindfulness of opening to what's going on in our hearts. Both of them come together. I remember hearing that from Sylvia Borstein maybe 15 years ago, and it really struck me as it was a bell that rang in my heart so clearly. We're able to see sometimes with unflinching courage and really come close to it and not back down, not cower in the face of what's difficult, to see what the underpinnings of our personality are. You know, it's not always good news, as someone said. I forget who it was, but Seeing clearly means that we can't just open to what's beautiful and cool, but we have to open to also what's really difficult to see, what's really difficult to face. I love this um, quote by Agnes Au. It was um, in the Shambhala Sun a few years ago, and um, it was highlighting Buddhist women. She talks about exposing or unlayering the painful habit patterns which we see in our Brahma Vihara practice as well. 
She said, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace and in so doing to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. The vividness of an unfiltered life. And I think deep down inside, that's what we all want. We, we want that in a good way, in a wholesome way. It's a wholesome wanting. That we really want to be with life without any lenses on, without any layers covering or separating us from the truth of how it is from the truth of how it is in our own hearts and with other people. We want to experience kind of like the boundarylessness of life. So through this process, we, we come to discover what those habit patterns are, what those habitual forces of what we call the personality are that make up and recreate this inner terrain over and over and over again because first of not seeing them, and sometimes of seeing them, but of um, translating them wrongly in our hearts. This is delusion. The effect of what is in our inner terrain uh, affects and has ripples on the outer terrain. That's common sense. We're inclining and nourishing towards what creates harmony here. That's what this training is all about. So that as we open to what we see in the inner terrain, we know that we really have to do some work to incline it towards what's more wholesome. The Buddha said, what a person reflects upon over and over again, to that his or her heart will incline. And when I first heard that, I reflected on, what this mind at that time uh, said to itself or me over and over again, complaining mind, judging mind, um, mind, a mind that criticizes oneself and others over and over again. And I came to see and call them empty echoes of the mind because they were just like bouncing off of the walls there. They, they came from habit, not necessarily from wisdom, from really investigating what's useful now. It might have been that they came up before because of some situations, some conditions, but not useful anymore. So when I heard that, what a person reflects upon over and over again, to that her mind will incline, I really made a determination and made a devotion to the practice of loving-kindness and the other practices of the Brahma-viharas because I made um, an intention to turn the mind there deliberately because when I saw where the mind was going haphazardly, I just said, no, I'm turning the mind here. This is where I put my mind. This are the words that I choose to repeat And when those words come over and over again, there is a strong determination to, and sometimes it isn't strong because of conditions, to here is where I put the mind and the heart. Not pushing that away, not with cruelty saying, you know, this is bad or a bad part of me, or, but just saying, no longer useful, here, and be very deliberate about it. Because that's where the mind will incline over and over again if those words are repeated over and over again. I don't mind at all when the words are rote or mechanical. I would rather have those words than the haphazard words that come to the mind and just kind of living in delusion. It's not comfortable anymore to do that. So, of course, um, we also see not just what causes unrest and distress and disharmony and fear on the individual level and on the social level, but we start to have an urgency to relinquish that, to weaken that, and to see and turn the mind towards what causes harmony, 
what causes peacefulness in one's own heart and between one and another? What can you do with your life uh, and, and not just let it be wishy-washy and haphazard? What can you do with your mind? As Manindra would always ask me in one way or another, what are you doing to train your own mind and heart? But of course, seeing the unrest, the distress and ways of ill will, the unkindness within my own heart had its advantage. The very fact of being able to see it had its advantage because the mind was awake, not asleep anymore. And it was able to see and develop some sense of urgency to turn it to another, uh, to another area to develop something that was more harmonizing in this world. And of course, to understand by seeing the suffering in my own heart, to understand that's how it is for others when I see it in another person or another situation. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, until you understand the meaning of suffering by really experiencing it, those are my words, until you understand the meaning of suffering, there will still be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. Isn't it so that when we have compassion for another being or something else going out out there, uh, there, no matter who it is, it could be our dear friend, our benefactor, it could be someone we don't even know in a foreign country, um, you know, some leader of the world that isn't really leading in a way that's... Uh, beneficial. When we can see that kind of suffering and that kind of ignorance, ignorance is hard to give compassion to. When we see ill will, we see cruelty, when we see attachment, yeah, we can have some measure of uh, compassion because we feel it. We know it. We have experienced it too. So that's the advantage of opening our hearts and seeing it within us. Because then when we see in another person, we know, first of all, we say, I know how that is. We remember a time that it happened. And when we felt really awful, the pain, the sting, the stabbing, the closing of our heart, because of that, we can understand that's how it is for that person. Ooh, that is really painful. It doesn't make what they're doing right, but it makes us connect to that place within them. So we can say, you know, in short, that the Buddha's teaching is divided into three parts. It's developing and nurturing what creates harmony and goodwill. That's what we're doing here with all these practices, very powerful practices. And the second part is we're disarming what is harmful in our own minds and hearts. Because in developing it, we're naturally letting go because we're seeing that this is not beneficial. So we develop something else. And naturally that is disarmed. And from these two, the natural potential for liberating wisdom can arise. Without these two as a basis, then this what we think might be liberating wisdom is just all in the head. It's not really an experience. So without this ability to face, to open, and to touch the suffering within our own hearts and minds, to really understand the landscape in here, it would be really difficult and hypocritical to really think that we could understand the landscape out there. How can we ever hope to have a truthful effect on the landscape out there if we can't do that with our own inner landscape? Again, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It just stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. And that can make a really big difference. That can ripple out into the world in ways 
which we can't even measure. Transforming our own hearts can be a real possibility. When I was um, first did metta practice many, many years ago, um, everybody was doing metta practice, and I did it, you know, for sittings in, in retreats, but I'd never really done it uh, in a long-term retreat. So I really just dove into it, and um, it, it was given to me as a practice anyway. I, I wasn't really asking for it, but it was time, and it was given to me by one of my teachers. And so I did a long practice in, uh, in loving-kindness, in metta. And in the beginning I said, okay, I'll give it a try. But I didn't have a really strong belief that I could really deeply experience metta. I just said, well, I believe my teachers, I'll follow their advice, and I'll just take one step at a time. And when I did the practice, it was a two-month intensive practice in metta, and I practiced it mechanically and rotely, the words went. And in time, I really felt the clearing out of the hindrances. In time, I really felt that how clinging and the wanting mind just was way, way in the background or very um, kind of protected by some force field, the force field of metta and of concentration, and how ill will was very, very far away or non-existent. The mind wasn't restless nor sleepy at all. There was just the right balance of energy. And there was no doubt in the mind because every moment was a clear moment. I wasn't thinking about the big picture. It was just about this moment, one moment at a time, very clear, no doubt about that. And so during the moments when I experienced loving-kindness, it was first because there was no ill will or no attachment in the mind. And it felt very innocent and very clean. And it, was, it gave me the first hint of like, oh, loving-kindness is really possible. And that was a kind of a turning point in my practice of loving-kindness and in my understanding of how clean the mind could be. Of course, those ill will and attachment were uprooted from the mind and heart, but they were absent for many moments at a time. And I thought, um, this is what it feels felt like probably when I was a very young girl. And it really felt wonderful, you know. Really, it was just great to feel the innocence of life. Of course, you can't live just with that, just with the innocence of life. You've got to have some wisdom, too. But I, I felt like... I felt like a child again. And I never... When I look back on my childhood, I never remembered those moments, really. But I thought, this is how it could have been but it got covered up somehow. What happened? In the meantime, it just got all covered up. So I was so, so interested and so, so curious to see how could, it, how could I continue this so these moments can be more in my life, these moments free from aversion, free from attachment, and with a lot of clarity, you know, relatively free from delusion. It really, it gave me a lot of faith and hope in long, long term in the possibility of total liberation by doing this metta practice. So I'm so grateful for that. And of course then, you know, the moments of, of not just the clearing of greed and, and hatred, but also feelings, uh, unimaginable feelings of experiences of metta came. So it's, it's so possible for everyone. I want to go back to this uh, quote by the Dalai Lama where it just, compassion stops those atrocities from 
continuing in our own hearts. And then coming to the experience of the morning, um, some, first of all, when I was doing the practice this morning, when James led us into the neutral person, it was, um, it was an interesting practice for me. So I want to go back to um, how some years ago I was really angry with how someone treated a very close family member. And I think when I look upon the moments of anger that I've had in my life, it was either one of the most angry moments that the mind was filled with, if not the angriest moment. It was about how a family member was treated with ill will and um, treated harmfully. And it, it was really hard for me and my whole family and of course the family member, to experience. I was so angry with that person that in, I, I don't have the, it in me to strike out, but I have it in me to spit at someone. And that's what I wanted to do. You know, but I, I didn't. <laughs> there was a moment um, during the time of considering the whole situation where I felt the anger in my, in my heart and then I realized that that wasn't much different from the anger that that person was feeling and what motivated or was behind the experience that that person had towards a member of my family. And it was interesting because it wasn't at first the compassion that connected me. It was really understanding that this anger here was no different than that anger there. So they just came together. And what came out of that was like a feeling of how painful it is, how painful it is, feeling that in my own heart and feeling that for the other person. And um, that was compassion. It was like, it was so tender in that moment that I realized it before. That was years ago. This happened many years ago. And then maybe a couple of years after that, I I realized how that anger came together. And there was really no separation. And I really didn't see that person's anger separate from my anger. Compassion kind of melted the barrier between us. And it was so opening the thoughts of wanting to help that person came instead of thoughts of wanting to spit on that person. It was, a, it was a real powerful moment. So one of the things that happened this morning was when James was um, leading the loving-kindness, that person came into the neutral person category. And I hadn't thought of that person for a long, long time. And it was with such delight that I... It was like, wow, this is wonderful, this is great. And nothing came up, you know, nothing more came up. That person didn't come in the difficult person category for a long time. It, It was as if that person were out of my life. But this morning it came into that category and it made my heart feel, this is good, this is really good. At the time, it was really hard. But when I look back, I could see that time when I realized that this anger here was not different from that anger there. That moment was a really strong moment in my heart. It, it wasn't like in the head. It was really, really in the body, in the heart, in the mind. And at that time, I knew it was really possible as, as is said, you know, compassion transforms suffering. It really does. It transforms it in our own hearts and sometimes in the hearts of others too. If my own heart could shift, 
maybe that person's could shift too. It was a purification of an old understanding of holding that person into some old view and really seeing that person in that person's potential instead of in the old ways that I may have held this person and then forgotten about this person. But to be able to see that person in this person's potential was really important for me. This is from Nyanaponika Thera, a German monk who lived in Sri Lanka for a long time. He died a few years ago and he was a great translator of the Buddha's teachings from Pali into English. A great writer and teacher of the Dhamma. He said that these practices that we're doing cleanse and strengthen the mind and the heart. They awaken dormant potentials. They result in the spiritual transmutation of the personality. And he used the word transmutation of the personality. Well, I go for that. (laughs) So we begin by practicing at the basic level of developing metta or goodwill in the Brahma-vihara practices. When goodwill or metta turns towards suffering, the aspect of compassion comes out of that. When goodwill or metta turns towards somebody who's experiencing joy, the aspect of sympathetic joy comes out of that. And when goodwill turns towards all the joys and sorrows of the world, when, uh, when it's really practiced deeply, the aspect of equanimity can come out of that, the ability to hold both the joy and the sorrow of the world. That comes from a metta of a goodwill that's as wide as the world, because it can hold everything in the world. So the aspect of compassion comes clearly out of that metta. Um, One of the teachers, uh, one of my colleagues was talking about, um, I think it was Guy was talking about when we're suffering in our metta practice, when something comes up that's difficult, then see if you can turn towards compassion. Do compassion practice a little bit. And that will that will really help the situation because it faces what's going on when you know the, the near or the far enemy of metta comes up, attachment or aversion, to go uh, and face it with compassion. So again, um, this morning in, in the metta practice, when uh, James went to the neutral person, I had more than one person, and so another person came to mind. And I was auditioning people in the neighborhood. This was one of the first people that came up in the metta practice before the, before the one that I'd spoken of earlier. And um, so I, I thought, well, I haven't gone to this person in a long time. I think I'll try this person in the neutral person category. And I was so surprised that I actually could put that person in the neutral person category because I had had some real difficulties with her. There was some difficulties with our boundary line and one day she came to me and just started yelling and screaming at me. We we came together thinking that we'd have um, a quiet discussion but it turned into something bigger than that. And... um, So it was really put me in a lot of fear and also in a lot of anger. And I didn't know if I really could overcome that for a while, but it died down after a while. So she was in the neutral person category, and I was really going through it with steadfastness, and there was a good momentum going, and I was really pleased at that. And I really felt like I had such a devotion not just to the practice, but to offering goodwill to her. And I felt really devoted to that. You know, it, it was giving me delight in the mind. I just felt delight coming up in the mind. And there was this ease in the body and in the mind about doing that. And then 
I could feel the memory of what happened in the past coming close. But it was in the background, it was in the background, so just leave it there, keep on, keep on with the metta. And then all of a sudden the memory just took over. And the fear and the anger came up in my own mind, in my own heart. And so I thought, okay, just face it, just turn to that in my own heart. And also hers was included, it just felt like it was all together. And the mind, I could see the mind and heart automatically from metta, it just went to compassion. Didn't have to think, oh, now I should do compassion. It just went there because it knows that when metta faces suffering, faces pain, faces the pain of anger, the pain of fear, it can be compassionate with that. It doesn't have to back down. It doesn't have to turn away. It doesn't have to cower in the face of it. It can really touch it with gentleness. So staying with it for a while, and then it was okay. Then just coming back to the metta phrases, no problem. So in the metta practice, when it's like that, and maybe you can see your heart quivering a little bit. It can turn towards uh, that moment with a Maybe it's a little bit nervous, there's a little energy there, but it can be with that moment, easily. Again, from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, who says that genuine compassion is based on the clear acceptance or recognition that others, like oneself, want happiness and have the right to overcome suffering. On that basis, one develops some kind of concern about the welfare of others irrespective of their attitude towards oneself. So it just kind of let all of that, whether it was um, towards me or whatever, it didn't matter. It was just that you, you feel the suffering and compassion can be there. It doesn't have to be the old empty echoes of the mind and the heart. The word in Sanskrit and Pali, Pali is the ancient language also that the Buddha's words were translated from. The word is karuna, and uh, Trungpa Rinpoche translates karuna into noble heart. Why noble? Because it's a heart that's able to face the noble truth of suffering. It becomes noble when it can face that first noble truth. It's the quivering of the heart in response to pain, in response to loss, and to death, to betrayal, to being hurt intentionally or unintentionally, in response to confusion, the confusion of others. Like I said, the hardest thing is to have compassion for people who are confused, for people who are ignorant of what the laws of cause and effect are. It's a quivering of the heart in response to growing old, to sickness, to death, to physical or emotional injury towards oneself or towards others. It's a quivering of the heart because it's a sign that the heart is alive. It's not dead. That's what I feel about it. It's like able to face it. And it's kind of getting energy. It's not cowering in, you know, the kind of quivering that's cowering. It's a quivering that says, come on, come on. Get your energy up and face this because you can do it. There's enough courage in your heart to face what's going on out there or to face the old habit patterns of your own mind. It's a quivering of the heart because it's awakened, not closed down, not numbed out. It's not resisting or fearing. It's really opening. And it's like getting its energy up to say, I can face this. It's activating the movement of the heart towards the suffering and not cowering away from it. It wants to alleviate it, 
this is what compassion is. It wants to alleviate suffering as if it were one's own suffering. That's what it feels like. There's no separation in that moment. It's a natural readiness to help. It feels like we're ready to help, but still we need some wisdom to know what's the best way. How can we do this? We can't just kind of charge forward. But it has that sense of readiness to help, like the Tara, the green Tara, the one with one's foot out, you know, just kind of ready to leap into life and say, I can help. Maybe help is like just offering some calmness and some uh, some soothing compassion, or maybe it's some actual action, whatever is most wise in the moment. All of our senses are open. We're able to get close to what's happening. We can touch it and see what the pain is out there and see what the suffering is out there. So we know what to do in a complete way, not just kind of from our heads, but from our hearts, knowing what to do. When someone is injured emotionally or physically and we witness it, you feel as if it were happening to you. But if you just feel it and you know, try to respond with the old ways of responding, it's not too good that way. You really have to have not just compassion but also wisdom to know what to respond with, how to respond, when to respond. So we really feel it in ourselves. Um, as Mila Repa says, this was a great Tibetan yogi, just as I naturally care for to heal a wound in my own leg as part of my own body, why should I not reach out naturally to heal and care for the wound of another wherever it exists as part of this body? It really helps one feel true compassion, feels that true interconnectedness between one and another. In that moment, there's really no separation. It manifests as a spontaneous offering of kindness. And maybe the kindness is stern, and maybe it's strong, and maybe it's, it's like the kindness that sees something stuck in one's throat, and it, it's going to hurt, but we pull it out. Or maybe we see someone that's just about to be run over by a truck and we push that person out of the way forcefully and quickly. So it's a, these are ways of kindness. They're not from an attitude of trying to hurt someone, but trying to save someone. It's not a withdrawal. It allows us to really connect and feel life, feel all of life, around around us. It allows us to reach out beyond aversion, beyond separation, beyond attachment to um, what we think is right. But it helps us to go through that and see what could be better than our attachments and aversion. What action could be better The near enemy of compassion is um, a kind of holding back in a way. It's a kind of unhealthy grief. It's a kind of pity for others or oneself where we really can't move. It kind of renders us immovable in a way, sometimes, not all the time but we don't know what to do with it. It's kind of like we're drowning in despair. And we can feel like it's compassion, but really we're drowning in it. And we don't have any energy to think clearly, to act clearly. We just are, oh, this is terrible, this is awful. And um, we pity ourselves or we pity the other person. We're in despair. It's an unhealthy kind of grief. This is the near enemy, or the direct enemy. 
it may be about something out in the world, but it may be something in ourselves, too, that we're responding to, this unhealthy kind of grief that we respond with. There's no clarity. There's no balance. There's no courage there. There's no wisdom that can arise there of how to respond because we're just uh, kind of um, paralyzed by what's going on. It's a mind that's confused. We're sinking in quicksand. And instead of standing on the side and helping, we jump in and we also sink with that other person or ourselves. Uh, Some time ago, my daughter was in the hospital, my eldest daughter, Um, Whenever I tell these stories, I have permission from my children to tell these stories. So my eldest daughter was in the hospital, and she um, was undergoing some surgery for uh, cancer. It had not progressed very far, but they had to um, remove all of her uterus, and it was a radical hysterectomy. So... When she was in the hospital, she was in a lot of pain. And it was the first time in my life that one of my children was undergoing something this critical. So she was um, at her bed right after the surgery, and I was standing at the wall next to the wall. She was right in front of me, and she was saying, Mom, I need the painkiller. They haven't come in for the painkiller I need it now. It's really bad. It's really bad. And I was just, I was kind of up for a few nights and um, worried like a mother does. And um, I was tired out and I had come from um, where I live across the ocean to see her. And I was slinking down the wall because I was just so lost in in my own suffering. And she said, Mom, don't go there. <laughs> you got to help me. <laughs> you know, get clear, you know, get up, listen to what I have to say, and um, would you please go out and tell the nurse that I need some more painkiller. It's really, really painful. And so, I, so I did. It was like I had to pull myself up and go back and go out the door and say, look, you know, we need something more. I didn't say it like that. I, I was a little, uh, you know, loud-mouthed about it. <laughs> but, but she got what she, what she needed. <laughs> anyway, that's a kind of, you know, despair. That's a kind of grief. That's a kind of sinking in, in, in something and you don't know what to do. You're really not clear-minded. And so I learned what it was, you know, then when somebody that close to me is going through something like that. So it's really trying to see it clearly, isn't it? I mean, it, it's so hard to see the difference sometimes between compassion and that kind of despair, that kind of not seeing clearly, that kind of unhealthy grief, the near enemy. The Buddha said, a tangle inside, a tangle outside, This generation is entangled in a tangle. I ask you this, O Gotama. Well, someone was asking the Buddha. I ask you this, O Gotama. Who can disentangle this tangle? The Buddha answered, One established in virtue, wise, developing the mind with wisdom, one who is ardent and discreet, This person can disentangle the tangle. Developing the mind, that's what we're doing here. Developing the mind with loving kindness, 
with uh, compassion, with sympathetic joy, with equanimity. This brings about wisdom. Developing the mind with ardency, with really understanding, with that kind of discretion, what leads to happiness? What leads to sorrow? This is a person that can disentangle the tangle. So, definitely, this pity that we might have, this despair, this unhealthy grief, cannot disentangle the tangle. So, we can get so bogged down in what's painful that we don't have the clarity to see what's right, what needs to be done. Um, This kind of despair and this kind of pity we might have for ourselves and to others, it's what we lead into life with. We lead into life with our wounds sometimes. And these practices help us lead into life with our strengths, instead of with our wounds that we're constantly saying to ourselves over and over again. So when we constantly say to ourselves, may I be healthy and strong, may I know this moment just as it is, or whatever you're saying to yourself or others, this is where, how we want to lead into life. I do those uh, words because when I see the other words coming up, I say, that's enough, I'm going here. And even though it feels rote, I go there. I just say it rotely because I'd rather have those words go through the mind and heart than anything else that comes up that's through ignorance and through habit patterns that don't serve me anymore. We can lead into life with our wounds, so that becomes our habit pattern that everything is based around. And as William Stafford says, they turn into pearls, our wounds. They take on a luster. They accumulate as decorations and as badges. We become victims and get identified with that. They make trophies that we put on our shelves making a solid sense of self, of all of those places of weakness, which we have to handle with loving kindness, but being very, very careful that we have the kind of strong compassion with it. In disentangling the tangle, we must be careful about this, to bring tenderness, to bring caring to each moment-to-moment experience to not build it into a monolith of me or mine, but just to see it as it is, another passing experience. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. I just talked about the near enemy. Cruelty is... um, when we push away or we strike out at what is painful. We strike out at with the body sometimes, with the mind, with our speech, with our behavior. It's difficult to catch when it's already in motion. That's why these times of being quiet are really, really powerful because we take this vow of silence as much as we can. We don't put it out there right away. We just are dedicated to seeing what comes up in the mind. And then we notice it. And in our practice here, we bring some measure of um, mindfulness, vipassana to it, and then immediately to bring metta or whatever practice of the Brahma-viharas we're doing to that moment. Instead of striking out with body, with speech, with our mind towards the moment, So really, we're learning how to respond appropriately. We're making a habit pattern of compassion, of metta, of sympathetic joy, 
in appropriate moments. We're really, what we're learning to do is to be appropriate, to be kind, to be kind, to be wise with our speech and behavior. This is really powerful. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. It's like striking out at with our words, with our behavior in different ways. Judging, criticizing, uh, these are all ways which we kind of strike out at ourselves and also others. Cruelty to ourselves, cruelty to others. Actress uh, Susan St. James lost her 14-year-old son in a plane crash. And after a year of anguish and rage, striking out, blaming, resenting, um, you know, just really fiery with unwholesome mental states and carrying them out, finally she saw what that was doing to her heart. And she forgave everyone and everything eventually. She had a lot of compassion in her mind. She forgave everyone who might be responsible for the accident that her son was in. And her hard-earned observation was this. Resentment, which she had over and over again, resentment is like taking poison yourself and waiting for the other person to die. So these are the things we learn in our practice. You know, we strike out with resentment, we think, but we're really striking out at our own hearts. The cruelty we're inflicting upon is towards ourselves, really. Striking out at others, hurting others, hurting ourselves with our, our own words and our actions, because when we put you know, words out there that hurt others, it's really hurting our own karmic field. And that will, that will bear a result at some time. So either way, this cruelty or this drowning in unending grief or pity because of suffering is a great disadvantage. And when we realize it through compassion, we can notice it then bring our hearts back to a compassionate response. These are the atrocities of the heart, you know, really going to cruelty and going to some uh, kind of pity or just closing down is the opposite way, really just closing down, closing in on ourselves. The other way is striking out. Either we strike ourselves or we strike somebody else. These are the atrocities of the heart And compassion for ourselves and others prevents that from continuing. Mm. I found this um, lovely story of um, Martin Luther King. It's about um, compassion. It's about striking out. It's about having that compassionate common sense that we need to have with our lives. We have to have enough sense to be compassionate. I'd just like to end with reading this story. It's called Life's Lessons by Martin Luther King. I think I mentioned before that some time ago my brother and I were driving one evening to Chattanooga, Tennessee from Atlanta, He was driving the car, and for some reason the drivers were very discourteous that night. They didn't dim their lights. Hardly any driver that passed by dimmed their lights. And I remember very vividly, my brother A.D. looked over and in a tone of anger said, I know what I'm going to do. The next car that comes along here and refuses to dim the lights, I'm going to fail to dim mine and pour them on on in all of their power. And I looked at him right quick and said, oh no, don't do that. There'd be too much light on this highway and it will end up with mutual destruction for all. Somebody got to have some sense on this highway. 
somebody got to have some sense enough to dim their lights. And that is a trouble, isn't it? That as all that as all of the civilizations of the world move up on the highway of history, so many civilizations having looked at other civilizations that refuse to dim the lights, and they decided to refuse to dim their lights too. And Toynbee says, Alvin Toynbee says that out of the 22 civilizations that have risen up, all but about seven have found themselves in the junk heap of destruction. It is because civilizations fail to have sense enough to dim their lights. And we will all end up destroyed because nobody had any sense on this highway of history. Somewhere, somebody must have some sense, must see that force begets force, hate begets hate, toughness begets toughness, and it is all a descending spiral, ultimately ending in destruction for all and everyone. Somebody must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate and the chain of evil in the universe. And that you do by love. Martin Luther King, one of my heroes. So without compassion, it's easy to strike out, to strike back. But with compassion, there can be a lot more wisdom. There can be a pause. There can be examining, knowing what needs to be done and doing the thing that comes from a deep kind of understanding. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you. We still have some time for a walking practice and coming back here at 9 o'clock. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.